0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Lindsay Marshall and Rory Kinnear. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. It's a great pleasure to have. Uh, With me as my guest today, uh, two of the actors who make this current production of Othello so remarkable and so special and so enthralling. But on the other hand, the prospect of afternoon tea with the Jagas sounded a bit forbidding for me. (laughs) So fortunately, I have their representatives in 2013, Lindsay and Rory, to come and represent them in in spirit as well as in body. Um, Congratulations. I mean, the relationship between the two of you, is extremely interesting. I mean, how... Uh, has it been a kind of voyage of discovery through rehearsal, through conversation, through performance? And how would you describe the the relationship between Iago and Amelia?
1: Well, I, I didn't know I was going to be a soldier until mm-hmm. yes. day one. <laughs> so that changed a lot because obviously we work together. We're um, in a situation where I think the pressure's more um, intense because we're with each other all the time. We're married, we work together, we're away, Cyprus together. Um, so that added a level to our relationship. I'll throw over to Rory. To add yeah, so. and
2: also the, I mean, the military side of it, which I'd sort of had a heads-up from Nick before before day one of rehearsals, but Lindsay hadn't, um, uh, that does... Yago's suspicions of... Uh, Othello's, Othello cuckolding him with his wife. Um, uh, that sense of loyalty and unbreakable bond that you get in, in army life and the camaraderie, that upon which the sort of military code and <clears throat> honour is based mm. and without which you couldn't really do the job. The fact that that's already been splintered in his mind in some ways gives him a green light to, to splinter it with Othello mm. himself. So uh I mean it was yeah, it was a it was a bold decision from Nick to to, to make Amelia part of the military world and to make it part of both the uh, the professional side of uh-huh. Iago's life as well as his personal uh-huh. side and I guess therefore making um making the relationship that much more tense. So, you know, going out to war was not a relief or an escape from um from marital life and um the the poison that I guess he he felt at home with her that it, you know, it was something he carried with him, <laughs> carried with him all the time. Mm,
1: right.
0: Now, who'd like some tea?
1: <laughs> I'd like
0: to- some. <laughs> <I'm laughs> <like> a poison. <laughs> yeah. There we are. Yeah. Now, what was your, because normally, Amelia's played as, I suppose, the one as lady-in-waiting, or confidante, or something like that. Tea, or are you sticking Please, to? It's to
2: like a, a marriage counseling session okay. for OK. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're going to get us back together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I live in hope. What I mean, what was your reaction when you heard that she was going to be in the military?
1: I, I think it's a fantastic um, decision because otherwise, it's very difficult. I think in a modern context to have um, Amelia. I mean, what would Amelia be? She'd be. She couldn't be kind of um, a a serving lady or a, a maid because that wouldn't quite fit. And I think um, the fact that. Nick cast me, and I'm the age that I am. Um, I think think it works that she's there um, working within the army, because then it also makes Desdemona stand out as being this kind of exotic being, of being this young, flighty Mm -hmm. woman in normal clothes. And I think if Amelia was as well, it would... um, it wouldn't be as potent, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, And also it's given me so many different layers to play um, within the character just because just that toughness, I think, has come out of um, just what I'm wearing, how I feel, Mm. just when you get the boots on and... um, I, I think it's really inspired. I think it you
0: really like, works. Like getting down to it with the lads, I suppose, with your combat fatigues. And oh yes, like in that. the
1: mess scene, I'm <laughs> up there on the chair. Mm.
0: All of that. Now, would you like some milk?
1: Oh yes, please. Yeah. Yes. You're asking the get hard get questions,
2: Al. <laughs> 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 it's also the uh, the extraordinariness of Othello inviting his wife on ops. Yes. <laughs> um, it would be diluted somewhat if also Iago got to bring his wife, yeah. um, and you know the. That sense of the the blind love that he must be possessed by at the time to completely ignore protocol mm-hmm. um, to to bring Desdemona out and how much you know how out of place she is and like a fish out of water. Were also there a, another lady who was also mm. a fish out of water. Um, it, it feels like that the potency of that decision would be diluted.
0: Is it? I mean, I, I assume I may be wrong. I think, yeah. Is it an abusive relationship? Is there? between Iago and Emilia? Has he been violent towards her, do you think, at at times? Does he intimidate her?
1: There was an interesting moment in um, the last scene last night, actually, um, because you don't see Emilia and Iago in many scenes Mm. together. Um, And the last scene is always, I love the last scene because it's different every night. And there was a moment last night when Rory Mm. put up his hand as if to hit Amelia. And it felt at that moment, absolutely, that's what happens. That's what I feel has happened and happens in the relationship. Um, And the way that Amelia talks about men and uh, in her speech in act two you get this sense that she's she's extremely jaded by men and um, she kind of get you know has crumbs in the relationship you know whatever he can give her the whole reason she gives him the handkerchief is You know, she hopes it will be a nicer evening, a nicer Mm, time.
0: It's a propitiatory offering, as it were, to to him.
1: I think when um, Amelia gives the handkerchief to Iago, that sounds so modern. It feels Mm. like um, it could be today. Um, What I think is great about the scene, the Willow scene, is the few times I've seen Othello, it's very much a bedroom scene with. Um, Amelia being a more matronly figure, a kind of nurse figure, a mum figure, getting Desdemona ready for bed, brushing her hair, Mm. getting her nightgown on, basically putting her to bed like a child. Um, And what is very liberating in the way that we portray the scene is that you have two women on deck chairs with no props, no furniture, and two beers, and I think... um, you can really hear the words. Mm. Um, And also the fact that you have Amelia there in her fatigues with a can of beer saying those words, I think you hear it differently, because you see it differently. Um.
0: Well, I'd never noticed that speech before. It was like, I I should have had my text to consult that, but I'd never noticed this, this sort of pivotal moment before. And yet this production, the decisions you'd taken, sort of liberated it, really, the most extraordinary...
1: It's the last time that they see each other as up as well, Amelia yes. and um, Desdemona, Quite alive. Quite.
0: <laughs> Has, is it depressing to play Iago, Rory? <laughs> he, is he seeping into your, you know, your sort of everyday life as oh, well? Does uh, it... I, like
2: to, I like to think I'm able to, to leave the job at, <laughs> at, the, at the building, um, and I think my family would like that as well. Mm. Um, uh, I don't know, you're never really quite aware, residually, how much, how much of an effect it, it takes on you. Uh, it is, um, in many ways, it's, it's sort of, he exists in in an absence of feeling. <laughs> so um, until, I guess, the very, very last moment of the play, in which there, I guess, that we try to hint at a moment of self-reflection, but until then, it's more the, the character that exists before the play starts that is in a, in a funk Um, and actually it's his resolve at the beginning of the play to to do something about it to infect Othello with the poison that he's been infected Mm -hmm. with himself Um, so in in that way actually the more, you know, and it's not like he has some Machiavellian grand scheme at the beginning of the play, he is making decisions moment to moment and they tend to come off extraordinarily um, and each level he goes up is a in uncharted territory and not really... I mean, he doesn't begin the play wanting anyone mm-hmm. to die. He just wants he just wants Probantio to ruin Othello and Desdemona's marriage. Um, and the more that things ramp up, then the more he sees himself getting an authority and a power, particularly over the, of Othello, uh, someone who, you know, who obviously hasn't considered him able enough militarily mm-hmm. to promote, but he sort of becomes his... Um, uh, Othello sort of becomes Iago's underling throughout the course of the play. And the, I guess the energy and the, um, uh, and the power that he that gives Iago is actually quite thrilling for him. Mm. And he must get carried away with that thrill, un-
0: otherwise he, there might come that moment where he'd actually think about what was happening. Yes, I think he becomes intoxicated with the, with the power, which he seems... He, he, as you say, I don't think he started off with this grand plan, he reacts to the events, but he's such a good, quick thinker, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, uh, he begins to sense the power he has, and he likes it. He has lots of taste for it. Yeah.
2: As someone who sort of complains that he's been overlooked um, militarily, actually, within his, you know, within his personal um, ambition, he's tactically incredibly astute, mm. <laughs> whereas a fellow who's been promoted, presumably, because of his military tactical nous, within his personal life, mm. is tactically... Um, idiotic. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, th- that that sort of—I mean, I guess it's Iago's fir- fir- first half in terms of in terms of the charting of the play until that collision at just before the scene, just before the interval, where Othello says, I mean, "Where Iago says, all this pain I've been feeling, you have it.'" And then you see Othello take that on throughout the second half of the play and how they react to that pain differently.
0: So you've, there's no doubt in your mind that. Yago genuinely believes he's been cuckolded by Othello. Well, he's he's the heard media. the suspicion, and that's enough for him. That's enough, right? And so, and you feel that that justifies something of what happens. I mean, are mm, you? I don't think you can say it justifies. No, but you're mind. looking at it from the world from his uh, viewpoint, his perspective. Yeah, I mean, you. That, I mean,
2: in terms of why he does what he does, you have the first speech of to of Rodrigo saying how you know how ludicrous it is that this young guy Cassio is being promoted rather than him. But you l- learn to realise through the course of the play that anything that Iago says to someone who's on stage is usually a lie. Um, so in some ways, those reasons become secondary to the reasons that he gives in the soliloquies. And mm. I, I tend to think people people very rarely lie in soliloquy in Shakespeare. and And it's easier to take at face value what they say in soliloquy. So the first thing he starts off in his first soliloquy is about... How he hates the more, and he he suspects that twixt his sheets, he's done his office, so for me that was you know the the thing that was burning in him, wanting to say and to get an audience to finally say it and to work out those thoughts uh, so I guess that was that was the key to me now, you know, why he's become the, a person who, under that suspicion, would do anything to bring down this man and I guess you know you you can't say too much about how premeditated it is or how things spiral out of control, but he certainly wants to take Othello down and cassia um why he is that person so quick to vengeance mm. or to simmering hatred. You have to work that out before the play starts and with many characters in Shakespeare, like Hamlet or Angelo, extraordinary events happen to the character with whom an audience spends a great deal of time before the play actually starts. Mm. So, um, you have to work out who that person was before before the event, and particularly sort of like the relationship with Amelia and what that might have been originally uh, and the relationship with Othello and how that's changed and how he's managed to conceal uh for you know however however long you say that you, know, you make up in your mind how how long that he the suspicion has been festering um so you think about going to i guess the only research or did pr- preparatory work I did was about soldiery and uh, warfare and knowing that it was in a contemporary setting over the last 10, 15 years and maybe the conflicts that, that he would have gone to, the kind of thing that Othello and Iago had experienced together and the, and the bond that that
0: formed. I was very struck by the scene. I mentioned this to Adrian a couple of weeks ago when he was in your very situation. The scene where you're together in the office where you begin to drip poison into his ears. The night I was in, the audience were chuckling because they admired Iago's intelligent <coughs> manipulation so much that they were kind of... I don't think they were colluding with him, but they were certainly f- so struck by how clever he was, how skilled he was, that they could not help but burst out. Now, that must be difficult for you, the two of you, to ride that, is it? Or are you able to kind of, you know, nip it in the bud? Yeah, there's, certainly,
2: there's certainly been, um, particularly over the first two weeks of previews and, and opening, there was a lot of work done to try and squash as much laughter as possible. And even in the final scene, there was, um, you know, laughs. And you know why, because it's incredibly tense. And and also, you've got the dilemma of an audience that knows what's going on and no one else on stage does except the one person they've been afforded a confidence with who's the worst person on stage. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's a history of audience members coming on and... Um, well, one in particular in which an audience but jumped up and, and shot the actor playing Iago, you know, there's, uh, and, and, and in some ways an audience, I'm not, I'm not advocating people do it, but in some, in some ways an audience not doing that makes them complicit in the tragedy, yes. so that you, um, you know, the, the horrendous manner in which Desdemona is killed, spoilers alert if anyone hasn't seen it, um, <laughs> Uh, is I mean, it takes so long and is is so brutal and each time saying if you laughed during the last three and a half hours in some ways this is your fault too oh. uh, and so if there is laughter and you know, at, at times particularly the speech I, I work hardest at to try and so, squash it is the one about Cassio's dream um, and because he goes on and on and it is you know the the fact that he goes on and on makes it. Sort of disgusting and ridiculous. Uh, but at the same time, you can never make an audience think that Othello is an, an idiot. No. Uh, and me and Adrian were very, very, worked very, very hard at making sure that everything I gave him was as believable yeah. as he needed, and every reaction that he gave to me meant that I could move on to the next stage. Um, yeah. So it's quite a fine little dance that scene, mm. but uh, it's it's incredibly well written. So you just have to work it, work out.
0: Because had, had you and Adrian worked together before this production? Had no. did you know each other? Had you? No, we haven't.
2: Really. I mean, Nick had asked Adrian about it about ten years ago, mm-hmm. and had asked me about it about five years ago. So, you know, we, there was an option to meet, but we, uh, I guess, we, it hadn't been set in stone when it was going to happen. So because
0: I think it, I can't think of any other relationship in. Well, well, I'm sure someone will correct me. World drama, when you have two characters of equal weight, so intimately involved with each other, in, in certainly in classical drama. I mean, has it demanded of the two of you, I, I don't know, a greater trust, a, a greater involvement with each other? Uh, I mean, I mean,
2: yes, in that um, you know we. We started talking about it together with Nick about the same time, about six months before rehearsal started. And, um, and, you know, we kept on bumping into each other once we sort of knew about it. Um, And then, of course, once you're into rehearsal, I mean, it does in the same way. I guess guess it's difficult to say because it's worked quite well and and we get on very well and uh, we like acting with each other. Mm. So... um, but I, I guess that's sort of the same with every other job that yes, you do. I mean, you, you sort, have have you sort of have, to have that trust and confidence in the people that you're working with. Um, I mean, you do only have also two scenes together, really, mm. um, and they're extraordinary scenes. And one in particular is an absolute masterpiece. Um, and it's you know it's a it's a great pleasure to be able to play it with someone who's giving back to you as much mm. as you'd hoped, and who's playing it. With such extraordinary delicacy and truth, so and I think
0: that's really thrilling for the audience to see. You know, two great actors at the absolute, you know, optimum, uh, working with each other in that way. It's really, I think, it's really thrilling and, and exciting. Anyway, let's let's leave Othello behind and the the Iagos and go back to the beginning. Now, obviously, we know about uh, Rory's antecedents, but Lindsay, you've got no show business in your uh, immediate family, I imagine. In fact. From what I read, you wanted to be an archaeologist. <laughs> and I wanted to
1: do anything other than acting.
0: <laughs> so were you going to go on time team with, you know, Sir Tony? Was that the plan? What Hopefully was your interest not, in?
1: no. Um, I did classics A-level. Mm-hmm. Um, I did um, English um, drama and classics and just had the most extraordinary classics teacher mm-hmm. who was incredibly inspiring, really passionate... Um, and I loved it. Um, and I was at that stage where I was getting ready to apply for university and, and then I kept thinking, well, maybe I should go to drama school. And I'd done a lot of things, um, like Manchester Youth Theatre, National Youth Theatre, um, plays in Salford, in, um, Hume. And I remember my mum's saying to me once, do you think you'll ever get paid to do this? <laughs> <laughs> and driving me here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I I basically took a year out because I needed to make some money and um, I needed to work out what I was going to do. And then I thought, okay, I, I I should just be brave and apply for drama skills. Mm-hmm. But it took me a year of kind of to and fro in. So... Yeah.
0: And do you retain your interest in archaeology? I mean, the, the odd, are you interested in crumbling old ruins? And don't look <laughs> at me when you, I, when you answer that. I've kind that, of, I've kind of left,
1: <laughs> I've left all that behind. I but, see. Um, oh, well. Yeah. Mm. Um, but I was really passionate mm. at the time. But I keep thinking I maybe should do like a mm. open university course, but there's never any
0: time. Well, why not? Right? There's no time. So you went, you went to train in Cardiff, and, yeah. but you got a job almost before you finished your course at the Royal Court, I understand.
1: Yeah, um, mm. in my um, last kind of six months of drama school, mm. it was quite difficult because I was doing a, a degree course, course because then I, I was the last year that could get a grant. Right, um, Happy days. I don't know how mm. anyone does it now. Well, they do it and mm. have a lot of debt. Um, and so it was a difficult decision because it would have meant me not being able to finish The degree, but then I'd been offered um, the the play Mm. at the Royal Court, and so um, my teachers were really fantastic and they marked me on my performance at the court, which meant (laughs) I passed. um,
0: Congratulations. Yeah.
1: I think the first
0: time I noticed you, and I think you were noticed quite, I seem to remember by the critics and the sort of the buzz, was when you did Boston Marriage by David Mamet with Zoe Wanamaker and Anna Chancellor. Now, they're pretty, talking of, you know, having good competitors, well, competitors, colleagues on stage. They are pretty high-powered ladies. So was it a bit daunting to find yourself in a a three-hander with them, as I remember? Or were they, you know, did they make it, easy and comfortable for you?
1: I I, I suppose the um, naivety of youth, I was so naive that I didn't really, it didn't kind of phase me at yeah. all. No. Apart from one night when, um, before we started, Zoe invited, and me, Zoe and Anna are still very, very good friends. I saw them the other night. Mm-hmm. She invited me, Anna and Philida round for dinner. Mm-hmm. And I was living with three other girls. It was four of us, all left drama school. And she'd left the message on the landline. And um, my other flatmate took the message about the dinner, never wrote it down. Oh, and so I w- uh, on this day, I was actually doing my tax mm. in my pyjamas. <laughs> I was covered in receipts. And I got a phone call about 10 to 8, and it was Zoe saying, where the are you? <laughs> And that was pretty terrifying.
0: (laughs) And I said, I don't know anything about it. She's
1: like, get in a taxi and come round now. And so that was, um, yeah, that was was quite frightening. But um, it was fantastic working with both of them Mm. and working with Philadelphia, Lloyd. um, And also David Mamet, he came and did, um, when we were in previews, and he gave some notes that I still remember now Mm -hmm. which you know I I use now Mm -hmm. and it's all to do with focus and energy and there was a scene when Zoe had this massive speech and I was playing a maid and I was sweeping and doing all this stuff and and then she has this you know fantastic last line and when he came he he directed me he said you know do not move a muscle do not blink do not do anything just remain perfectly still because it's all about focus and if Zoe's got this huge speech and you just do this or go like that, then you've got maybe 150, 250, or 70 people suddenly go like that to you and it dissipates the last line. Mm. And, um, and
2: there are some actors who know that and do it anyway. <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no names, no Pat. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so I learned a lot from mm-hmm. that job. And it was an incredible experience.
0: And one of the most challenging things for you to do. It was played Cleopatra in Rome, the home box office. Now, because I was just watching this program on, you know, Liz Taylor's and Richard Burton's Cleopatra. It's, it must be difficult when you've got all that, all those ladies who played Cleopatra, to, for you to forget all that and to kind of investigate the character as if it were the you know, first time you'd heard of her or yeah, read about her.
1: I, I, th- I think it's the same, but then it's the same with Shakespeare, I mean, how many actresses have played Amelia? how many actors have played Iago? I think if you're playing a, a classic part like mm-hmm. that, you've got this whole kind of reign of people who have done it before you. Um, and I think all you can do is treat it like new writing, treat mm-hmm. it like it's the first time it's ever been done. Otherwise, there's nowhere to go. She wasn't actually a great beauty, that's what no. was um, mm. quite useful. Um, yeah. She um, she spoke several languages, mm. she was incredibly intelligent, she was noted as being hugely charming, and mm. men would just fall in love with m- her brain, mm. really. Um, but, obviously, there was a lot of... I mean, I, I had a lot of criticism playing that part as well, but the criticism was to do with my looks. And people have a certain idea that, mm. you know, Cleopatra is Elizabeth Taylor. Mm. So, you know, wh- why, how can that be, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but also I think there's a huge um, pressure on young women now who are in those kind of series, HBO series, BBC series mm. of having to look a certain way, having to show a certain amount of flesh. and I'm quite glad that I'm not in that ingenue kind of mm, mm. area anymore. It was also a, a remarkable job for me because it was um, a really huge break. Um, I got to live in Rome, work at Cinecittà, mm. work with really great people yeah, again. Yeah, marvellous um, And, yeah, it was great. Mm,
0: good. Now, another friend of mine, another chap, he was wondering, he couldn't compute the fact that Adrian is playing Othello, but also starred as Mickey in Hustle, and I felt like saying to him, "Well, the guy playing Yago is appearing with Count Arthur Strong on Tuesday night." But is this part do actor never been to the theatre? <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he has a very sheltered life. This chap. But the point being is that, of course, actors—you all have to be so versatile now. But that's something you embrace. That's what I said to him. Was I right to think this? are actors very shy of becoming typecast or associated with a particular part or sorts of parts?
2: I guess so. I mean, um, Mm -hmm. the fun thing about being an actor is that there are potentially lots of different things to do. And um, and that's in terms of both the parts that you can play and the media that you you can work in. And they all require different skills, you know, doing tragedy and comedy and working on TV or in the fil- in films or in the theatre. They all have f- slightly different skills, but also they're <laughs> all exactly the same job in that mm-hmm. you, you create a character and try to breathe some incredible life into it. Um, so whilst the job sort of remains the same, the various techniques differ. So you sort of... Uh, I mean, I guess I, I really in- enjoyed the idea of becoming an actor because I thought it was too... Um, it was too difficult just to, be, just to make a decision about who you wanted to be as a person. <laughs> um, and there just seemed to be so many different options you could be. Uh, and so rather than having to make a choice for myself, I thought I could uh, try and live out various other people through my career.
0: Well, yes, I remember reading a quote. You, you will not but the, the film actor Claude Rains, who uh, appears in lots of old black and white films you might see. I'd see he, I remember seeing a quote when he talked about... The pleasure he'd had in playing people who were smarter, more better looking, more intelligent, more dynamic, than he felt he was that you know, some actors, uh, I suppose, if they if they sense or they feel they're inadequate in some way, can you know go into acting and to kind of you know compensate for. I didn't say for inadequate. <laughs> 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 I'm talking in general as well, you know, Roy. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, the... Uh, the uh, is that that fun in being? Is there still, you know, do you still get that kind of element of enjoyment and pleasure in putting on another uh, character, both of you?
2: I mean, I, uh, I really. I mean, it's also the uh, also the thing that you sort of forget about how it, the, the enjoy the enjoyable part of it is how how much creating a character develops and changes throughout the job. Now, if you're if you're filming something you want to try and have as great a handle on the character by day one as possible. Mm. Um, obviously in rehearsals you've got, if you're working here, six or seven weeks to try and develop it. But you know, when you get to the end of a run, you know, when, when we finish this in October, I always feel like I want to apologise to the people that came to see it at the beginning of a run, because you, you've got such a richer and more varied and greater understanding of, of the person. Um, and, you know, it's sort of the same in filming, because, because come the end of an eight-week shoot, you know so much more about the person mm-hmm. you did. Unfortunately, you, you've shot it. Um, but uh, I, I think that's, that's the thing I, I really enjoy, that actually the sort of depth of understanding that you can get to with, with a character, as well as, you know, that initial stage of making the, you know, the essentially externally and internally bold decisions about who they are and, and what they... Um, and what their history is but i guess the sort of the subtleties and nuances that evolve throughout um living with them for a, for an extended period of time and that, you know that's why as as much as long runs of plays can be demanding in terms of keeping it, the life mm. um uh enjoyable for 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 other actors and yourself it, at the same time you're a, you're able to um sort of get yeah get a deeper understanding
0: because you're everywhere at the moment, uh, Rory. Because Southcliffe, this is a Channel Four uh, series. Do you want to introduce that to us? It's on next week, I think. From
2: yeah, uh... it's on on Sunday for for, for four nights in mm-hmm. in a row, um, and it's uh, it's a yeah, four-part TV drama about written by Tony Grisoni, who, who wrote the Red Riding trilogy among other things, um, and directed by a, an American director called Shawn Durkin, who directed. This film, indie film, called Martha, Marcy, May Molly, and it's really about the effects of a tragi- tragic event in a uh, in a small town. It's a small coastal town in this case, but the, the tragedy happens to be a uh, lone gunman going on a on a sort of a mass shooting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's trying to, I guess, it's slightly more meditative than um, sensationalist. Look at look at an event like that. In that, you sort of explore the lives of the characters. Um, and the perpetrator, before it happens, and after, and the effects that uh, that something like that, and you know, very many different effects that it can have on a community. How it brings some people together, how it splits some families apart. And, um, it's
0: uh, it's 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 really extraordinary. It's it's it's, it's fantastic. Well, sure. Now you've also started to write plays as well. Next month, your first play, *The Herd*, opens at the Bush Theatre, and you. You haven't got a bad little cast of unknowns there. Ken Cranham, Amanda Root, Anna Calder Marshall, directed by some beginner act, uh, director, Howard Davis. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about how all this has come around. Have you been writing on the sly for some time, then? Um, I, I, sort of, I, I got to grips, finally, with this. I, it was sort of a, a,
2: a theme that I'd wanted to explore um, in a play for a long time and, and never really... Well, uh, I guess I had never really given myself enough time to really sit down and to think about how I wanted oh. to tell it. And then uh, I was doing a play here called *Burnt by the Sun* a long time ago, and uh, we had a two-week break. And during the, the course of rehearsals and uh, and the performance, sort of my I guess my brain was ticking over on on the the other side, on the writing side as well. And It sort of arrived to me what kind of play I wanted it to be and the and the structure of it. And we had a two-week break and. Um, And my partner said, you know, stop talking about it, go away and write it. (laughs) Uh, So I I went away for for two weeks to the the Lake District and and sort of wrote every day for, you know, 14, 15 hours, and uh, wrote a first draft in that that fortnight. And um, did a reading of it with some friends and made a few uh, changes and then sat on it and worried and didn't really want to do anything about it because it felt quite exposing. but I knew that one person that I wanted really to see it and to read it, because I know he doesn't pull his punches when it comes to <laughs> criticism at all, and I have got f- a couple of friends who are, who are writers who bear the scars of his, <laughs> uh, of his script reports. Yeah. So uh, I knew Howard would be, um, would let me know if I was onto a wrong thing, uh, and he wouldn't try and soft soap his reaction. And uh, and he was sort of surprisingly encouraging and positive about it. So, I went away and, and did another draft, and then well, I had our son and sort of things just sort of got on the back burner, and mm-hmm. I forgot about it for a while and I was pleased to have gone it because it meant i didn 't have to show it to anyone again uh but howard kept on kept on, up, kept, on up, kept on at me and asking me what I was doing with it and so eventually, I got the courage to send it out to mm-hmm. some people and um and the Bush said that they they'd like to do it and I still hadn 't asked Howard if he wanted to direct it, and I was very, very nervous, and I sort of he hadn't said that he did, and I hadn't really asked him, so there was sort of, we were sort of dancing around each other whether or not this was actually going to happen. Then it, the slop came through at the bush, so I, I thought I'd be brave and call up Howard, um, expecting just his usual gruff, curt, one-word uh, answer. Mm. But I didn't know if that was going to be no or yes. Um, and um, and it was his voicemail, so I had to <laughs> leave a burbly message to him. Um, and, yeah, he, he texted me back about 20 minutes later saying, Love to do it, um, and that was definitely the single most satisfying professional experience of my yes. life. <laughs> I knew for the next eight months I didn't have to worry because uh, having been directed by him mm-hmm. three times, you know, in terms of socio-realistic drama, he's sort of uh, be- beyond mm-hmm. uh, incredible, uh, and I knew he would make it better than it probably was.
0: I must ask you the next question, though you may not like when I ask you this question, but. Are you likely to be the new occupant of the TARDIS, Rory? Now, this is your chance (laughs) to squash the rumour once and for all.
2: No, I can can reveal I am going to be... No, I'm not. (laughs) No, 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 don't know where it came from. Don't know why why I got involved. (laughs) (laughs) I've got caught up in the maelstrom, but, uh, yeah, flattering but false. But
0: you said that you were quoted as saying you'd never watched an episode of Doctor Who before, which I found... Improbable, is this true? Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm afraid it is, yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. What about a sort of... Oh, dear, it's about time we had a, a female uh, mm-hmm. doctor who... Lindsay, are you interested? No, in, in no. Start the rumor now, everybody. <laughs> <it> now. <laughs> no. Now, tell me... About, now, one of the most exciting uh, experiences you've had must have been working with Clint Eastwood a few years ago. Now, tell us about that. What are your memories of that?
1: Yeah, it was... Um, It was amazing. Um, He doesn't um, ever audition people. Mm -hmm. You put yourself on tape. Um, And so it was a very strange um, setup in that when I went to film, I was quite disappointed where where I was filming because it was set in Paris, in Thailand, in Detroit. And I filmed in Elephant and Castle. This um, <laughs> is it a film called Hereafter? <laughs> yes. On a really rough council mm-hmm. day. Um and so oh I was incredibly nervous because you got to set, and then um I went where we were filming and was waiting and waiting and waiting, and every time the door opened, I thought, Oh my god, this is gonna be him, this is gonna be him. Mm. And then An hour passed, two hours passed, and then um, everybody was nervous because they'd filmed in um, America, but it was their first day filming Mm -hmm. here, and so I hadn't taken that on board, so everyone was a little bit, didn't, you know, hadn't found their feet. Um, And then um, this very strange thing happened where the first went, okay, so um, come through the door and we're turning, and it was, a <laughs> it was a moment then when I suddenly stopped being a bit kind of to Actually, I'm here to do a job and I need to meet the director. And I said, I haven't met the director yet. I don't know what's going on. And everyone was mortified mm-hmm. and no one knew what was happening. And they went, oh, my God, I'm going to go upstairs. And then I went upstairs and he was just sat there. And it was just so weird. Because it was like walking into a room and like Marilyn Monroe mm. sitting there or Elvis sitting there. It was like Clint Eastwood sitting there. And... Um, I worked out he was just incredibly shy. He was very, very, very shy. And he was incredibly polite, couldn't have been nicer. Um, And what was incredible about being directed by him is he would, (coughs) you'd only maybe do one or two takes, and he'd be behind the camera. And and I have one scene that's quite an emotional scene where I'm um, basically... Um, saying that I can't look after my son and he's going to go to foster Mm. parents and so it's all very emotional and he's, Clint Eastwood is behind the camera and he's kind of watching on this tiny monitor but he, you know, completely goes there with you so he's crying and crying and you're kind of crying going, Clint Eastwood's crying (laughs) it's quite odd and... And I said to him, I said, you know, why don't you ever audition people? Why don't you meet people? And he said, well, I'm an actor, and, you know, I I know what it's like, and I just would feel that everyone who came in, I'd want to give everyone the part. (laughs) So, yeah, he was really nice. And he also used to do this thing where he'd never say action. He'd Mm -hmm. always say, and... go, or when you're ready, Mm -hmm. or nothing, and suddenly you were filming. And I said, why don't you ever say action? And he said... Well, when I was doing all the westerns, mm-hmm. when the director would shout action, as actors, you instantly get tense, and so your thighs go a bit tight, and then the horse is <laughs> And so we worked out that, let's not have action on the <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I'd never thought of that before. Mm. <laughs> so the horse would sort of, you know, tighten up as well, or rea- yeah. rear or something. Yeah. Well, well Goodness me. And were you able, was he able to kind of tell you what he wanted or tell you that you'd given him what he wanted? Because some film directors tend to be quite, you know, uh, taciturn, don't they, about what they want or telling you how it's gone.
1: I think he just trusts with the casting mm. that he's got it right and he he leaves you to it. Um, I think the big challenge in that role, uh, in that film, was that I had two twin boys and neither of them had ever acted before Before. and so it was about um, trying to get the right performance Mm -hmm. from them so that was quite a learning experience as well and there was a time when um, Spielberg produced it and all the big wigs came down one day and Clint, Clint my old chum, (laughs) took me aside and said you know I really need to get this reaction Mm -hmm. from the, the little boy and I'm just going to let you improvise. And so I knew they were all there in the little filming village and mm. and it went on for about a good 20 minutes mm. and I, I thought is anyone going to stop this? Is anyone going to say cut? Um, but it was it was extraordinary working with this young boy and seeing you know how he reacted and at one point I slammed my hand on the table and he really jumped and I was like oh no. <laughs> you know um But, and also, it's that thing that Rory was saying, that when you're filming, because I've done mostly theatre, you know, you have six, seven weeks, or you have four weeks where you have all this time to develop a character and to go home and to obsess about it, to wake up thinking about it, to dream about it, to have your tube journey home thinking about it, and um, there's certain different pressures when you're filming in that there is no time for rehearsal, there's n- no time, really, and so you've got to take everything there, and so when they go and we're turning action, mm-hmm. that it's, 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 it's all there, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: So did Spielberg and the other bigwigs, did they go away happy then with this sequence, as far as you were I think aware? so, I think so.
1: Well,
0: congratulations. Now, it's been absolutely fascinating, uh, listening to the insights that you've given us on what I think is going to be a landmark production that's going to be remembered as you know, as the years go by. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's join us. Join me in thanking Lindsey Marshall and Rory Kinnear.